This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Donnell Rehagen, President and CEO of Clean Fuels Alliance America. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Learn how a strong U.S. sugar policy supports a sustainable and efficient sugar supply chain at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Clean Fuels Alliance leader Donnell Rehagen next. America's sugar farming families and workers are proud to say that our sugar is made in America. The U.S. sugar industry supplies America with affordable sugar and provides good jobs in communities across the country. A new study from the Agriculture and Food Policy Center at Texas A&M found that the U.S. sugar industry supports more than 151,000 jobs and contributes more than $23 billion to the economy each year. America's sweetest industry is supported by a sugar policy that costs taxpayers nothing. Learn more about how a strong U.S. sugar policy supports a sustainable and efficient sugar supply chain by visiting SugarAlliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. What once was the National Biodiesel Board is now Clean Fuels Alliance America. President and CEO Donnell Rehagen says the goals of the group are still the same, but the name is a better reflection of the industry and their overall mission. It's really a recognition that uh, we are no longer an industry of just one fuel. You know, for decades we were working uh, on uh, commercialization and marketing for biodiesel, and I think we've done a pretty darn good job of that, by the way. Uh, but also over the last uh, Ten years or so, we've seen this new fuel, renewable diesel, coming online. And then in the last two or three years, we've seen sustainable aviation fuel uh, begin to materialize. And all those fuels use the same feedstocks. And so we felt it was important to keep the whole entire industry together, not just one of the fuels, but all of the fuels, because they're all sort of interdependent upon each other. How is the nation or the globe's interest in climate change affecting corporate policy and its desire for renewable fuel. Corporate policy is increasingly going to be driving our industry, and no pun intended there. But, you know, we've always had some reliance on federal policy and on state policy to to kind of move our fuels into certain areas where they feel like there's more of a demand or more of a need or they have goals. But increasingly, corporate policies that are pushing high levels of decarbonization at the corporate level are really going to push our fuels into those spaces and we're seeing it as we speak the the demand for our fuels are growing exponentially so if you think about a walmart or a costco moving all of these goods from ports into the you know midwest or wherever your local walmart is it's going to get there probably on a diesel platform either rail maybe by marine vessel uh, for cert for sure uh you know on over-the-road trucks, all of those using diesel fuel. So if you're Walmart and you want to reduce your carbon footprint by 40% by 2030, uh, you're going to have to look at the transportation of the goods that you're moving, and that's where we come into play. So what does this mean for your industry and for the producers of the feedstocks that you use? I think it's a great opportunity, particularly for our soybean farmers in the country. They continue to produce you know the majority of the feedstock that's being used in our in our fuels uh, but the demand is, is continuing to stay very strong and it's only going to grow we are expecting around a billion gallons that's a billion with a b a billion gallons of new renewable diesel production to come online in the next 12 months 
and then we're expecting another billion gallons about the 12 to 18 months after that. Um, and so those are all going to be new demands for the feedstock pool that we currently have. And so there's a lot of efficiencies that are happening, use cooking oil collection, animal fats, and those that are also going to supplement that. But we're really, really going to depend on our nation's soybean farmers uh, and our oilseed processors to uh, provide more feedstocks for that increasing demand. So we're talking about a paradigm shift where soybean meal has been the top use for the crush of the soybean, and at one time, uh, soybean oil was even a burden on price discovery. So how do you expect this paradigm shift from the primary now being the oil in terms of the price that your uh, processors may have to deal with and for the industry overall? Well, I think meal still, you know, always going to be a primary driver for growing soybeans. It is 80% of the bean after all, but we're, we're proud to be doing everything we can to add value at the farm gate for soybean, uh, growers. And so that's going to help actually the meal and the protein side of the world do a better job of feeding even more, uh, people around the globe. And so, uh, I think from our producer standpoint, though, I mean, uh, we are seeing an investment, uh, significant investment, Jeff, from the oilseed processors. We've calculated the announced soybean crush that has been announced so far to be about $4.5 billion worth of private investment. Companies like ADM and Cargill and, you know, the ones you would suspect uh, to increase the crush by somewhere around 30%. So we expect to see... 30% more oil, uh, soybean oil available to us in the coming years than what we've been used to. So for agriculture, I think this is a huge win. What are your feedstocks? Again, our primary feedstock is soybean oil. It's going to be over 50% of the biodiesel, renewable diesel produced today is going to be made out of soybean oil. And I like to look at the other half kind of as a third, a third, and a third. Uh, so that other half is going to be a third of that is going to be used cooking oil. And we're excited about uh, you know what we what we bring to the table there. We're keeping cooking oil from restaurants and stuff. We're keeping them out of the sewer. We're keeping them out of the landfills, and we're providing great value there. So, used cooking oil is about a third. Uh, the other another third of that other half um, is going to be distiller's corn oil. It's kind of the residual out of the back end of an ethanol plant. And then animal fat. I would like to refer to that as the you know the parts of the animal that don't end up on our plates. So we're adding value to that, which I believe is going to be helping with the price of the food that you and I do eat at the, at the supermarket. So let's go to the Hill. What's the status of the federal tax structure and infrastructure toward the renewable fuel industry? We've definitely seen a lot of increased interest uh, through the Biden administration. Uh, the Trump administration as well was very interested in infrastructure. Uh, this uh, Inflation Reduction Act that was just passed by Congress and signed into law has the extension of our biodiesel tax credit in there. So we've received a two-year extension. And for us, the best news about it is that's prospective. So we did not have to wait for it to expire as it has a, a number of times uh, over the years. And so, yeah, starting in 2023, we will still have that biodiesel tax credit. So for 23 and 24, it's going to convert then to a what's called a tech neutral. So they're going to be more concerned about the carbon reduction the renewable fuels bring as far as figuring out what the how much of that dollar value that a, a, a fuel or a producer can derive. So from the tax credit, the federal government has stepped in and said, hey, we, we see a long runway for you guys. So here's five years' worth of some level of certainty, and, and we want to make sure that we're your partner. And on the infrastructure side, we continue to see that investment through the IRA, 
um, in infrastructure for biofuels, particularly for us, biofuel blending. We like to see that uh, support growth in terminals, storage and blending infrastructure to push blends of biodiesel and renewable diesel you know out to more customers around the country more important question what do you need well we need to see these continued strong signals of support and demand uh, when things in the past have been you know off and on and up and down it really makes it hard for our producers to feel good about making investments and we need those plants to continue to grow continue to employ people so strong signals of demand and again, as we talked about earlier, I'm excited about that because we're seeing that corporate demand that you and I spoke about as being a huge uh, kind of a momentum shift for us where it's not just a, uh, a, we're not just fuels relying on federal and state policy. There are some who have suggested that maybe this administration has been playing favorites with regard to the energy of the nation and transportation, a love affair with electric vehicles when renewables have received a sliver of the support financially from the administration, as has the electric vehicle industry? Well, I, you know, I think, Jeff, the real, the real thing that we want to focus on is I think we're all here in, that, in this space for the same reason. I mean, we originally uh, got into this industry. This industry evolved the one I'm involved with uh, because we needed to help support farmers and find a home for some soybean oil. But, you know, come to find out it's one of the cleanest fuels on the planet. And so when we see an administration like this one or maybe the next one or the one after that, that wants to continue focusing on, on the climate and what we can do, I think we're going to be very, very supportive of that. And that's going to include, you know, even their support for electric vehicles. So, as you know, we're, we're involved in diesel platforms, right? So rail, marine, over-the-road trucks. And those are probably the least likely or longest term for electrification. So while, uh, you know, on the light-duty side, those goals of reducing carbon can easily be met with an electric vehicle. It's not quite so easy, you know, with the platforms that we operate in. And so we'll continue to be that partner with anybody who wants to drive their carbon use down. And, and I think because of the country's high use of the platforms that we operate on to move goods, you know, get groceries to the store and and all of that on diesel platforms, we're always going to have a long shelf life for our fuels. Donnell, this past week I saw a story from the U.S. Energy Information Administration saying that, that renewable diesel production will surpass biodiesel production, and it could happen as soon as October. Before we go further, what's the difference between renewable diesel and biodiesel? As I mentioned earlier, Jeff, they're made out of the same feedstock, so they start out being exactly the same. It's really then about the production process. And so when you look at biodiesel, I always like to refer to it, and I'm being a little loose with the science here, but I refer to it as more of a, of a uh, chemical reaction. It's a chemical process to transform that soybean oil, I'll start with soybean oil, into a fuel that really, really works well in diesel engines. Whereas you look at renewable diesel, and if they're going to start with soybean oil, they're going to use a lot of heat and a lot of high pressure um, to make that to turn that uh, so same soybean oil into a, you know a slightly different fuel from biodiesel. Both are very compatible with diesel engines. Both are very compatible with each other. In fact, we see today probably the number one blend of diesel fuel in California is renewable diesel plus biodiesel. So. Uh, they're, they're, it's just the differences in the process of turning the, the feedstock into the finished product. So what makes renewable diesel more desirable 
today? Well, I'm not sure that it's totally more desirable. Uh, both biodiesel and renew- renewable diesel have uh, some excellent characteristics. Renewable diesel is a little bit easier to use, uh, you know, in its neat form, or in, like in 100% renewable diesel is a little easier to to deal with than 100% biodiesel. You typically, you'll see biodiesel blended into diesel fuel or blended into renewable diesel. So if you're a fleet or if you're a, a government agency and you want to be 100% fossil free or you want to really go all out on reducing the carbon in your transportation fuels, you could use an R100, 100% renewable diesel, uh, or you could use a blend of biodiesel and renewable diesel. And so that's why I think there's a increasing push for just higher blends of the fuels that we offer, and renewable diesel kind of makes that happen a little bit easier. So what role now does the airline industry play in the fuel industry discussion? Because airlines had been off the table for some time, but it seems like now they're coming to the, to the forefront. Well, it goes back to that conversation you and I were having a little bit earlier about electrification. So if you're if you're a believer that nearly all on-road transportation can be ultimately replaced with electric, even over-the-road trucks, if you're a believer of that, then you're thinking, okay, so now what? And obviously airline uh, and aviation is a, is a different beast. And so the likelihood of electrifying an airplane and putting a bunch of people on it or a bunch of goods on it is, is not near as likely. So... The focus has then become, okay, then what do we need to do to decarbonize air transportation? And so, again, that's where our fuels come into play. As I mentioned, uh, you can make sustainable aviation fuel out of exactly the same feedstocks. And so uh, there there are sustainable aviation fuel producers in this country and also around the globe that are beginning to step up their game and make more of that product. Again, somewhat, Jeff, back to that corporate decarbonization goals. So if you're United Airlines or Southwest Airlines, you have these same goals as as uh, you know Walmart and Costco have to decarbonize your operations and so the that's putting sustainable aviation fuel in high demand right now. How deep is this well? Uh, in the United States, uh, aviation fuels are about 24 billion gallons a year. So it's a pretty deep well. The uh, uh, the, the opportunities to grow the volumes, uh, you know, into where they would like to be is, is, is endless, really. So lots of opportunities. You spend a lot of time on airplanes, and I do as well. Lots of folks listening spend time flying uh, across the country, around the world. Any reservations about using a renewable product like this, of aviation fuel in a, in a plane? Well, I know I wouldn't have any reservations, and that's mainly because I know how much testing has to go into these. We've been through this before just on biodiesel, not with airplanes, but even with over-the-road engines. The immense amount of testing and retesting and confirmation, you know, in order to even be able to introduce our fuels into a, you know, an, an F-250 pickup. I know how immense those are, and I know it's uh, it's even greater on the aviation side. So, yeah, absolutely. I think it's, they're definitely going to be a proven fuel before anybody would consider putting them, you know, in, in high volumes into any uh, any airplanes. So now I'm moving you back up as we're in the airline industry. We're talking about that back up to thirty thousand feet here. If if we're looking at all of the states of the union, what role does California energy and air emissions? What role does California play in influencing the policy of other states and even of our federal policy? 
Well, California desires to be a leader in these types of issues of decarbonization and climate change, no doubt about it. Uh, their, their low carbon fuel standard was first put into place in 2007. So they've been at this for a long time trying to decarbonize their transportation fuels. And Jeff, we were pretty excited last year, uh, in 2021, biomass based diesel. So that's biodiesel and renewable diesel. Uh, we were over 1.2 billion gallons, uh, went into the state of California alone. That's about a, that's over a third of all the fuels that we make here in the United States. And so, uh, that was, 33% of the diesel pool. So if you pulled up to a pump last year in California and, and pulled out a gallon of diesel, of diesel fuel from the pump, what was marked as diesel fuel, 33% of that gallon was either biodiesel or renewable diesel or both. So the, they are uh, certainly following themselves and being that lead uh, in, in trying to bring not only California but the whole West Coast and, as you mentioned, even other states and even the federal government along in pushing for and proving that these kind of cleaner fuels can actually work. So they have used renewable fuel to accomplish their goals. And then there's this. The story from the past week is the California Air Resources Board made this bold mood toward zero emission vehicles, eventually ramping up to a hundred percent of the new vehicle sales in that state to be either electric or hydrogen by 2035, and other states like Washington State and Massachusetts suggesting they're uh, interested in such a move as well. Now, in the statement, it suggested that they would need 15 times more vehicle charging stations statewide. I did a little unofficial research, and it showed about 80,000 charging stations in California. 15 times that amount, if my math is correct, is 1.2 million. This is a bold move, and it doesn't sound like it includes your fuel. Well, it is a bold move, Jeff, and I think what your numbers are, I'm sure, are right, and they sound right, but it just goes to show how massive of an issue this is. And so uh, excited California has some strong goals and visions. We all industries need to have those. But I think they're also going to see, as they have over the past decade, as I mentioned, the low-carbon fuel standard you know, started uh, 15 years ago now. Um, and today, biomass-based diesel is still generating the largest amount of credits in the low-carbon fuel program. We are generating over 45% of the credits. So if electric vehicles was really going to happen you know, quickly, then we would probably be on the outside looking in, but instead we're actually leading the fight in California to help them decarbonize. So um, I think it just goes to show it's, it's going to be a long, tough path. And to me, the real answer is why are we picking one fuel or one fuel source or one energy source over any of the other when really we should be looking at all the great fuels that are out there and making sure that we're doing all the things we can to increase the use of all of those. I appreciate your diplomacy, but I also consider this. I mean, 80,000 charging stations, that's a lot. 1.2 million is a lot more. And an electric grid that is already challenged where there have been states or there have been times that that state has said, don't charge your cars, uh, it, it seems to me uh, a real stretch. I do, uh, and, and I am caught in the discussion in that they didn't say you wouldn't be able to uh, not to use your piston-powered vehicle, whether it's running on 
on gasoline or diesel, you'd still be able to do that, but that new sales would involve either electric or hydrogen. So I think they're really trying to make that bold statement. They're trying to shape the policy and the vision that not just they have, but as you mentioned, you know, they're they're enticing other states to share that same vision. So if you if you want to be a leader, you are making bold uh you're you're making some bold statements about where you want to be and what you want to do. We believe we're boldly leading where we're at as well. And so uh, you got to have a goal. you got to have a vision that's really going to pull people and drive people to change what they've accepted as the norm. And I think that's really what California is trying to do is just suggest that, hey, do we really need to continue to depend on this? I think it's up to them to figure out whether – you know, ten, 10 years from now, as we get closer to 2035, whether they're still going to be able to stick to that and whether that's still going to be the best idea at that time. But they're definitely, definitely trying to drive, you know, the opinion of a lot of people at this point to, to follow the lead California is putting out there. So I'll go one step further with this. In order to accomplish that goal, a lot of work has to be done on the electric grid, has to be a lot of work done on charging stations and fueling stations and technology. So right now, with the fuel that you offer, biodiesel or renewable diesel, what benefit can you immediately offer a vehicle owner, a corporation, or a fleet that's shifting from petroleum diesel to the renewable product? What can you already do? Well, that's what we love to tell folks. You know, our, the tagline for our organization and for our fuels is better, cleaner now, and I think now being the important part. We spoke about California having this goal that by 2035, such and such is going to happen. The goals that they're seeking for 2035, which is you know zero emissions, we can nearly get them there today by using biodiesel and renewable diesel, you know, 100% in place of petroleum diesel fuel. So that's why I was saying it's, this should not be an or thing. This should not be either we're going to do electric or we're going to be do, or we're going to do renewables. This should be an and situation because we're going to have an impact on carbon reduction today. We can have that impact today. You start using diesel, uh, biodiesel, and renewable diesel in your vehicle today. Today, you start changing the emission profile of your vehicle and, and obviously impacting the. You know the environment in a very positive way. So why would you wait? Why wait till twenty twenty five or twenty thirty or twenty thirty five when you can re- achieve those same kind of reductions today? Do you have confidence that your industry, from the producer to the processor to the refiner, do you have confidence that you can meet this growing demand? Well, as I mentioned, I, I do think there's going to be a point in time where there's going to be market demand, whether that's on-road, whether that's rail, marine, or sustainable aviation fuel, there's going to be demand that may exceed the production capacities that we have. Um, again, I, I'm a true believer in the markets, so I also believe that as that is becoming apparent, there's going to be changes in the marketplace. We've seen that, for instance, with these announcements from the soybean crush, right, that they've decided now rather than exporting the whole bean, hey, there's enough demand for this oil here in this renewable fuel sector, let's crush more bean in the United States, and we'll keep that oil here. So there's market dynamics that may change what I just suggested about, you know, not a total synchronization of supply and demand, but uh, I'm confident we will, we, our industry will continue to see extremely strong demand and uh, not worried about uh, that at all. Well, Donnell Rehagen still on the task of uh, promoting renewable fuels and now with a new name, 
but still with the same mission. Uh, we appreciate your uh, work on behalf of the environment and for the producers that you support. We appreciate you taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. Donnell, you've been here before, and today you know you got the last word. Yeah. Jeff, thanks thanks again to you to helping us get the word out. And I just really want to thank all of our nation's uh, farmers and those in agriculture. They do so much for not just us in the United States, not just the renewable fuels industry, uh, but, of course, they help feed people all around the entire globe. And so uh, were it not for them and their support and their vision, our industry wouldn't be here. We, you and I would not be having this conversation today. So wish everybody a, a very safe harvest this fall. And, uh we look forward to talking to you again. Our thanks to Donnell Rehagen, President and CEO of Clean Fuels Alliance America, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Learn how a strong U.S. sugar policy supports a sustainable and efficient sugar supply chain at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally. 